Good evening to all of you and welcome. Greetings to all in the name of Christ. Well, the routine that we've been doing is our memory work before we get started, and that's in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. Uh, let's see, how can you do without your Bibles, I wonder? Now, if you can't do it, take your Bible with you, okay? Let's all stand, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, and I'll try to keep my eye on it so I don't make a mistake, and uh, you follow along. Do your best to look away from your Bible. Here we go. If ye then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. God bless you all. You may be seated. I, I am blessed by those verses, and I would ask you again, did you find yourself setting your affection on things above? Or what sort of things did your self get fixed upon? What did you fix your thoughts on? Did you recognize that you are told to be dead and you are declared dead in Christ if you are His? Your life is hid with Christ in God. What does that mean? Tonight we want to pursue that. Before I forget, children, I've I, been wanting to have a children's meeting all week long, um, and I have not gotten it done yet. Um, so let's plan on having a children's meeting tomorrow night. Is that okay? Uh, who should I ask? Brother Dave. Okay. All right. Tomorrow evening, children, let's plan on having a children's meeting. The message I have tonight is a, a message that, in fact, um, I promised the Lord many, many years ago that um, by His grace, I will deliver a message like this to every congregation that I preach to, uh, especially in a week of meetings. It has to do, as I told you with, about last night, with the concept of remaining morally pure. I would call it moral purity. I see some dates that I have written on here, and um, uh, one of the earlier dates I see is 1999. And so there's a lot of things that I would have built into this and added to it uh, many times. If you saw my pile of notes, you probably have reason to worry, but um, I, I will do my best to move on through. There's some things I don't know for sure. I, I memorized where certain things are on these notes, and so I'm scared to change it. So I keep adding to it. Take your Bibles, first of all, and turn as a foundation for biblical thought, Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, and I want to start reading at verse 27, as I told you the other night regarding the sermon on anger, pride, and reconciliation, in verse 21 it says, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. In verse 27 now you see it says, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. He's making a statement that has to do with what the law said and also how uh, the leaders of the synagogue often framed the thoughts. Jesus is saying, you have heard this by them of old time. Then he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. He, 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 he quoted commandment number seven. All right. Then he says, but I say unto you, and then he goes on, and as I told you the other night, I believe that he raises the standard 
to include the heart motive of the sin. Well, in verse 21, when we had a message or we thought about the concept of anger, the spirit of anger, I'm sorry, the spirit of killing is anger. The spirit of adultery, when you include the heart motive, has to do with lust. And that's really what this is about, the whole concept of lust and what it leads to and the, the long and, and fearful end of it. Here he says, I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now I would want to comment here and say something like, um, it seems like at times that it's speaking here just to the male gender in verse 28. However, it says that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery, and I would point out it says with her. So uh, I, would, I would want you to think about that, and we'll get into that further as, we, as the night progresses. With her already in his heart. So the lust that's created causes a mental relationship with the other person, and this person who, who someone might be lusting after uh, could be really just as much to fault or at fault as the one doing the lusting. So it's a sobering concept to think about that. So having, having the desire, the intent, is a serious matter. Jesus is pointing that out. He goes on further to explain uh, why and how serious he makes this. Verse 29, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now, again, there are some that say that that verse is teaching that if there's cremation and you destroy the whole body, then there's nothing that can be destroyed or suffer the pangs of hell. I don't believe that's at all what he's saying. He's saying there would be a better thing to happen if you were to destroy your eyes, get rid of your eyes, and if that would eliminate the problem. Now let me point out to you that destroying the physical eyes does not control lust. It may cause uh, you not to be able to see certain things, but think about that. Verse 30, if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. The conclusion could be drawn easily that would say that hell is the end of lust if it's not repented of. And so I think we need to be careful about that. Very cautious in what we're thinking about. In American culture, I say, and I've heard others say this as well, that we live in a pornographic culture. I think that's true. It's unfortunate. It's very sad. In the early 1950s, Elvis Presley came on the scene playing his guitar and singing, and his body movements were such that they refused to show his body from the waist down on The Ed Sullivan Show. That was a TV show longer ago. You move on further, and let me, I'm, I'm pointing out something, and what I'm trying to point out is that there's a close correlation between music and art and culture. Now, the next step that American culture went through was the Beatles movement in the 60s. 
Basically, the Beatles initiated America into a respectability of drugs and that kind of behavior. Many people don't recognize that or realize that, but this thing progressed rapidly, and eventually you got into people like Grateful Dead and some of those. I know these are a long time ago. Those were in the 70s. It's gotten not better from there on, but it's gotten worse. I would also point out that in American culture, there has been an acceptability of Darwinianism that gave rise to evolution. Evolution says there's no accountability to God. All you are is a glob of cells. It's not true. Uh, last night, we looked at that concept and how that God breathed into man the breath of life. And there's a relationship between a husband and a wife and a family that comes together that God has his hand in. You have other things that are happening as well, and there's progressivism that has gone on and on and on. In the 1970s, you had, or 60s rather, you had some things like the hippie movement and that kind of thing that ultimately removed from the public consciousness moral integrity. And as a result, what has happened is there's been a lot of degradation that's gone on. There's a destruction of some moral fiber that has occurred. And it seems like that everything just like a wheel keeps on turning in, in culture. What has happened, I think, now is the hippie movement and some of the music that has contributed here and there and the philosophy of American uh, uh, lifestyle and those that are in style, etc. cetera, uh, it, it has destroyed moral, moral accountability. Now, the word moral actually refers to the concept of right and wrong. So what we're talking about tonight has to do not just with culture. We already see the biblical foundation. Pornography and illicit relationships have occurred many, many times since the beginning of, of, of the earth. Uh, Satan is the mastermind of all things impure. And I want you to remember that. Uh, whether it's videos, whether it's, whether it's your cell phone, whether it's magazines, whether it's cable TV, whether it's radio, whether it's print media, whatever it is, you need to be aware and alert to some of these things. The, the internet, and I do not know what your policy here is in this congregation, but I would urge you to be cautious and careful about that kind of thing. Be respectful of what, what your position is and respect that kind of thing. I think that what has happened over a period of time that you could go all the way back to the early 1900s, you have the era of modernism and modernism basically elevated science and said science can find the answer to all of our lives. Uh, our lives will all be better because of all the good inventions. And many of us have lived in some of that. However, I think we've entered into an era called postmodernism where science is no longer highly valued as it once was. There's been an elevation of human spirit and the, the spirit of the human and the humankind is elevated above what the facts are, actually are. I can create my own reality, thus it doesn't matter as much whether or not I lie or tell the truth. As long as it works for me and for my situation, I'm able to do that. That's the concept. Truth is suppressed. It's been turned down many times, and it's unfortunate. All right. And I understand tonight as I present the concept of moral purity as what would be a biblical foundation. I understand in the audience 
There are those of you that are married, you have your partner. There are those who are married, perhaps your partner is not here, not living with you, is gone, is separated, whatever. Uh, those of you that are married, but perhaps your partner is, is, like I said, no longer living. Some maybe have faced divorce. Some are single, have never been married. And I've had to admit that perhaps there's times when I'm speaking to, in an audience to those who have an attraction to the same gender. Um, I want to be careful tonight in my word choices. I, I do not wish to uh, be disrespectful to the calling of God to preach the word. And so I, I, I make a serious attempt at that. I realize that in the audience like this, there could be people who have violated scriptural moral laws of God regarding moral purity. I understand that. Perhaps there's sinning against others that has occurred in your past and you've sinned against others. I would urge you tonight to repent. And that's the message that I would like to leave with you. Those who were sinned against by others with the concept that we're talking about tonight, who have violated uh, scriptural principles, I would urge you to think about your case as well. So whatever your situation is, Tonight, what we need to think about is the concept of uncontrolled physical appetites. And I know the scripture text that we're talking tonight has to do with the concept of moral purity in relation to the physical relationship. But I would tell you that the Lordship of Jesus Christ calls us to have controlled physical appetites in every area. So it's not fair to just zero in on one aspect and totally ignore every other. So I want us to be fair about that. And oftentimes the five senses represent the entry level of what occurs. Uh, to die to the appetites of the flesh. To bring my desires to the Lordship of Christ. And say, God, I give this to you. And I no longer want to uh, control my own. I want you to take control of me. Out of control, physical appetites in any way, in any area of life for the Christian, to me, is a violation of the principle of the Lordship of Christ. So I want to be fair in how I, how I present this. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, it says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You reap what you sow. And some of us are very, very sorry that we have sowed what we've sown. But we can repent and God forgives. And I would, I would state that right up front. Indeed, we are here to present the gospel of Christ that can deliver us from sin. Jesus Christ came in to the world to save sinners, Paul said, of which I am chief. Who are, who are you? Who am I to say that somehow I don't have that problem? Again, I remind you, never will the Holy Spirit lead you into moral impurity or violation. Your moral compass needs to be guided by the scriptures. Moral impurity, I would say, is a symptom of a spiritual adultery that's already occurred, likely. It's because of the power of the human physical drive that Satan often attacks the Christian in that area. 
He knows that the jugular vein of the spiritual man is easily severed with moral impurity. And that's why it's so devastating and so powerful. America needs to repent. And unfortunately, it's sorry to say this, I, I, I'm sorry to say this, but many times those in America who call themselves Christians are, are far, far from the biblical text of what Jesus commanded. The church is never commanded to become a kingdom that overthrows a kingdom of unrighteousness in the physical sense. But it is commanded to be the light and the salt of the world. And so, as Christians, I think we need to hold up a high standard. Now, let me do that again. I think the Christians should hold up a high standard. Now, wait a minute. A, a high standard. You get the point? Uh-huh. I think. In Ephesians 5, it says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it's a shame even to speak of those things which are done to them in secret. And it's because of that that I want to be respectable and careful how I present the topic tonight. I want to read you a poem. "'Twas a sheep, not a lamb, that strayed away in the parable Jesus told. A grown-up sheep that had gone astray from the ninety and nine in the fold. Out on the hillside, out on the cold, "'Twas a sheep the good shepherd sought, and back to the flock, safe into the fold, "'twas a sheep the good shepherd sought. Why for the sheep should we earnestly long and as earnestly hope and pray? Because there is danger. If they go wrong, they will lead the lambs astray. For the lambs will follow the sheep, you know, wherever the sheep may stray. When the sheep go wrong, it won't be long till the lambs are as wrong as they. And so with the sheep, we earnestly plead for the sheep sake of the lambs today. If the sheep are lost, what terrible cost? Some lambs will have to pay. I don't know who to credit that poem to, but it's a beautiful poem to present the concept that I'm thinking about tonight. This topic is not just for youth. This topic is indeed for every one of us, male and female alike. I think it's important that we take it seriously as adults, as grandpas and grandmas as teenagers, as male, as female. Take the subject matter carefully and seriously. Someone has said that the eye and the heart are the two brokers of sin. The eye and the heart are the two brokers of sin. And we all have those two. Here's another poem, The Bridge Builder. An old man going on a lone highway came at the evening cold and gray to a chasm vast and deep and wide through which was flowing a raging tide. The old man crossed in the twilight dim. The sullen stream held no fears for him, but he turned when safe on the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, said a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your strength with building here. Your journey will end with the closing day. You never again will pass this way. You've crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build you this bridge at eventide? The builder lifted his old gray head. Good friend, in the path I have come, he said, 
There followeth after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way. This chasm which has been as naught to me, to that fair-haired youth may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I am building this bridge for him. American culture says if it feels good, do it. If you want pleasure, pleasure is the highest good. You just go for it. That's hedonism to the core. That produces nothing more than a reprobate mind because you will go against all of God's laws and as a result what happens is you'll exchange the glory of the uncorruptible God into some image likely uncleanness is the result and the unclean and the impure is a result of changing the glory of God into something that it shouldn't be. In verse 25 of Romans 1, you change the truth of God into a lie, it says. So you exchange it first, then you change it into. And finally what happens is God gives people over to a reprobate mind, and a reprobate mind is a mind that is void of being able to think properly. I think we need to think carefully about that. One that is not able to pass the test. I wonder for sure... Why it is that we're not shocked like our great-grandpas were. I tell this story every time I do this. My great-grandpa was riding with my grandpa and my father in about 1930. And they were going down the road. They went to our county seat and in town my father said that grandpa, his grandpa, said, Oh my, would you look at that. There was a woman walking down the street. She had trousers on. And they were up to right below her knee. And great-grandpa said that woman ought to be locked up. Now maybe he was out of place. But I don't think so. He was probably understanding exactly what was going on. How many of you saw immodesty today? You know what? You may not have even noticed. Male or female. I say that it's a serious problem because we're becoming numb to what's going on around us. There's all kinds of things that are out there. We could go down the list and do all kinds of things and talk about the bad things and whatnot. But what I'd rather do is point out to you what it is that God would want us to think about in terms of His law. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 21. Where it says, how is the faithful city become an harlot? And that's a, not a question. It's an exclamation point. He's making a declaration. How could it be that those who name the name of Christ... I'm making the analogy. How could the, those who name the name of Christ become such harlotry? In their home culture, it was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Thy silver is become dross. Dross is what you scoop off of the top of the impurities and take it away and throw it away. Righteousness used to lodge there. The silver, the valuable, was becoming waste. Thy wine is mixed with water. I'm asking us as Christians today, we like to think of ourselves as being pretty high in our standard. 
God sees our hearts. God sees our thoughts. God knows who we are. God knows everything about us. Let's allow him to judge us. And let's cry out to him before judgment day. Because it would be a total disaster. If you were under the, the deceitful impression that you were saved. But you were still thinking and acting upon the lusts of the flesh. Because if that's what's happening. You're not much different than those who don't name the name of Christ. Dross might glisten as silver. It could have some in it. Just look pretty nice. And watered down wine might retain a little bit of its color. But neither one of them is worth anything. They're broken down. And I think it's important that we take a close look at where we're at. Some people might say, it's not my fault. My father was this way. I can't help it. I was brought up this way. I'd like to suggest to you several scriptures. Go with me, and we're going to do this quickly. Go with me to Exodus chapter 34. I believe that you may be affected by your past. You probably are. But there are those that teach that generational sin is something that you can't help. And you must confess the sins of your fathers. I would declare to you that there's no place in the New Testament that you can find that concept. You are told to confess your own sins, but never someone else's. In, in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, this is where usually this starts out. The Lord passed by before him. Now this is when Moses was headed up the second time to get the two tables of stone. All right, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, mercy, uh, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity, and here's the scripture that someone will point to and say that we need to repent of the sins of our fathers. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third and the fourth generation. And they stop there. I would suggest you follow me. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verses 9 and 10, it says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, referring to other gods, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And look what he added, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now let's go again. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, verse 29 and 30. There it says, In those days shall they say no more, The fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge, but every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. All right, that's a shift. Now go with me to Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 2. And it says, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Jump down to verse 18. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence, and did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. Yet ye say, why? Doth not the son bear the iniquity of the father? 
When the Son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be, set upon, shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Now, I, I, I want to I tell you, folks, I believe that we are affected by our past. I believe we are. But I don't believe that we have to be victims of our past. I think that's a very important concept, especially as we understand this. You see, you start injecting secular answers to spiritual issues, and the next thing you have, you've just hatched a spiritual religion, and that's not what God wants. The second thing I would tell you is mixing the secular and the sacred always leads into something that's a spiritualism. Be careful. The next thing is, there is purity in Bible answers. Only way to, to answer this debate is to go to the Word of God. And so it doesn't matter what our subject matter is, but I just wanted to point out those verses to you. There are terms in the New Testament. One of them is fornication. It would be the physical relationship between a male and a female that God says, don't do it. Another thing with adultery is, again, outside of the, the marital bond. There's a physical relationship, and God says, stay away from that. Don't do it. And Jesus, in our text, is addressing this whole concept of gazing lustfully with adulterous eyes, creates a mental relationship. It's important that we understand what we're talking about. And I would tell you also that Jesus was, was talking to people that were very tolerant on some things and very, very hard on other things. It's important that we understand what we're talking about. The history of every temptation. I found this in the commentary. I like it. I quote. The history of every temptation and every sin is the same. The outward object of attraction, the inward commotion of mind, the increase and triumph of passionate desire, the ending in degradation, slavery, and ruin of the soul. I'd read it twice, but I don't have time. Let's go further. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. It's a very important truth to understand that when we come to Christ, we are told to walk after the Spirit. In Romans 8, verse 2, it says, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. All right, it goes on and it says some more. Go down with me to verse 5. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, that's physically minded, where the physical is above the spiritual in importance in your mind, in your life. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Folks, until you come to Christ and understand that you have to lay your appetites down. As I told you last night, are you sure you want the Lordship of Christ? If you, if you call out to God and say, I want to give you everything I have, He will demand total ownership of you. That's a serious matter. I was a Catholic priest once told a friend of mine, I, told him, I took an oath for celibacy, not purity. 
I think that's unfortunate. That's a sad commentary of the priesthood. It's not right. It's not right. He made a vow not to marry. He didn't make a vow to be pure. Go with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 and 25. There it says, They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Again, not much room for lust to be active and, and, and passion out of control. Uh, they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If ye live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, you go back further in this chapter, and it says what the works of the flesh are. In verse 19, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. That means they're, they're made plain. You can see what they are. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So you can't count on it at all that somehow God's going to overlook your behavior. It won't happen. You're going to have to, first of all, come to the cross, repent of your sin, lay it at the foot of the cross, and call upon God to fill you. I think it's important that we understand what the foundation of, is of this whole subject. It's very important. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, it says, Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Now, folks, that's not celibacy. The scripture does not teach celibacy. It teaches rather we ought to be pure in what we do. How do we maintain that in practical ways? I was preaching at a church one time, and I saw this happen. A little 12-year-old came up to a young man that was probably 21, 22 years old, and she was, well, she was flirting with him, and he didn't fall for it. He was a godly young man, actually. She came up to him, and she said, forgive me for doing this, but I want to illustrate. Can I hug you? And he said, No. Oh, why not? And you know what he said? And I like this. He said, because I'm a man and you're a woman. Well, she was a 12-year-old. And she said, oh, I love you so much. I was kind of impressed with that. That young man understood an appropriate relationship with someone. Be careful about that. I have a friend he said, I don't like to sit next to this person because she's a married woman. She doesn't have her life in order the way she ought to. And she'll constantly be flirting with her eyes and with her feet under the table. Hmm. See, it tells us in Romans chapter 6, tell, uh, tells us how we ought to behave ourselves, tells us what to put to death. It says in Romans chapter 6, it says this, in verse 11, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Oh, I think of my story now. <laughs> dead indeed unto sin. Now, I've, I've used this illustration. I probably did it here. I don't remember, but I probably did. But I am dead to cottage cheese, folks. You can't tempt me with it. It doesn't have any appeal to me. I don't care how you fix it. There's no good way to fix good cottage cheese. 
Just no way, as far as I'm concerned. Now, that's my, how I see it. However, let me tell you, if you try to feed me cottage cheese, I'll eat it. And I'll, be real, I'll try to be real discreet. But I remember how my mama used to make this stuff. She'd go to the fridge, she'd smell the milk, and she'd say, hmm, this is bad. So she'd sit it on the stove, let it get worse, and in a week we were supposed to believe that it was now better. <laughs> go figure. I don't know. But there are other things that I'm very much alive to. Do you get the point? Now, folks, maybe you like cottage cheese. That's not the point. But the point is we're told to be dead indeed unto sin. The, the concept is it's supposed to be mortified. In Romans 8, that's the word that's used. Now, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. See yourselves as dead indeed unto sin. So the opportunities that a fallen culture of another gender might present to you, you refuse because you reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. You with me? Young people, don't ever look at marriage as an opportunity to be able to fill your fleshly lusts. It is a wrong concept. If you do, your marriage will eventually be in trouble. There is no place in the scripture that gives permission for unfettered lust of the flesh. The physical always has to be servant to the spiritual. That's the biblical concept. Go with me to another in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. Romans 13 verse 14. It tells us, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Be careful about that. Don't go trying to do that. Folks, listen. Regarding the, the, the sermon last night with the family concept, teach your children appropriate maintenance and propriety of their own physical bodies. Be cautious and careful about that. Your children need to understand what is right and what is wrong. Don't just assume and hint at it. There needs to be a time when, Father, you need to talk with your sons. Mother, you need to talk with your daughters. Be careful about that. God intends for us to lead our families in such a way that they're, not, that they're thinking in terms of not making provision for the flesh, even in their younger years. Go with me to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, you know how it starts out, don't you? If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. By the way, he's sitting there interceding for us. That's a wonderful thought. Young men, when you face temptations that as, 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 as the hormones start to begin and you start maturing, the, the thoughts that you struggle with, the things that you... You face, I would urge you to go to your father. Father, I would urge you to talk with your son about those kinds of things and help them and give them good direction. Don't have them just guess. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Then he says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And he names things that are directly related to physical immorality. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now... I want you to think about this. In, in the first one is fornication is, 
is, is the act of marriage without marriage, violating uncleannesses, lewdness, and impure motives where the dirty becomes acceptable and you can tell a joke that's kind of two-sided. Man, you know what I'm talking about. You walk into a business place or those people that you associate with and every once in a while you have to face that kind of thing. What are you going to do? I don't care if the joke's funny or not. It's best to turn on your heels and go the other way. Why? Because your testimony is risk. Be careful. Be careful. Be very careful. The next one is inordinate affection. Inordinate affection is suffering passionately. An affection that's obsessed with passion. Be careful about that. The next one he talks about is evil concupiscence. Concupiscence. What's concupiscence? We don't use that word. But if you look up the word, it means earnest desire. Irregular, violent desire. And then it talks about cupidity. And when I was studying this, I looked at Cupid. Oh. I was in a house one time, in a home. And this mother was standing there teasing her 10-year-old girl. You have a boyfriend, don't you? And she goes all giggles and smiles. The little girl was embarrassed. The mother should have been, but wasn't. And she just went on and on and on and played this song for a long time. I got tired of it, quite honestly, left the room. I wanted to say something, but I bit my tongue. Maybe I should have said something. I don't know. You know, Cupid, that little angel that flies around in February, you know, and shoots an arrow, twing. And hit somebody's heart and they what? Fall in love? Folks, that's as artificial as a $3 bill. That's not genuine love. Those things are not right. Those are not biblical concepts for the Christian. We ought to be concerned about that. Let me tell you something. You start doing that with your family and you're going to cheapen marriage. You're going to cause them to think about things that they shouldn't have to be thinking about. The flesh always wants more and more and more. And there's no point in starting that kind of conversation. Girls, do you use your physical attraction to attract a mate? Do you try to lure or seduce someone? You're violating the spirit of what we're talking about here. Do you use your body as a means of attraction? That's, I think, the concept when we talk about modesty. I tell you what ought to happen is you ought to have extra fabric on that part of your body that is intended to elicit lust. You ought to hide and mask those parts of the body. If you don't know what parts they are, talk to your mother. You see, the flesh always wants more and more and more. Young lady, if you have a boyfriend and if he tends to not keep his hands off of you the way he ought to, mark my word, he's being attracted to you for the wrong reason. Think about that. Marriage doesn't cure the lusts of the flesh. No, it doesn't. You see, we're told, neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. You're not supposed to use your body, young ladies, as a vehicle to lure or seduce someone. Neither is a young man supposed to take advantage of you. Go with me to Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
Now, I, I want to point out something to you, and that's this. There's three words in the New Testament that all are translated from one Greek word. The three words are sanctify, saint, or holy. Sanctify, saint, or holy, or any form of those words, are typically from one word that is hagios, which means holy. It means that this, this special trait, virtue, this virtue of holiness, truly, if you study it out in Scripture, cannot be attained by somehow vicariously God putting into your veins something that's not there. He doesn't just inject you with holiness and boom, just like that, you're holy. No, that's not how it works. Typically, according to Scripture, it's telling us that we need to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. We're told to forsake sin. We're told to live a certain manner of life. We're supposed to maintain a holy temple. We're supposed to be careful about being a holy priesthood as unto God. All right, First Thessalonians 4. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk and please God, so ye would abound more and more. Now I'm asking you, are you abounding more and more or less and less? You see, you might hit a plateau once in a while, but let's not go less and less and less. Let's abound more and more and more. All right, that's what he says. For you know... Uh, what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, even your holy behavior, your holy goal that you have, that ye should abstain from fornication. Now, you know, I gave you the definition, you should not participate in that. Verse 4, that every one of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. There's that word again. Now, he's using something here. He says you ought to know how to possess your own vessel. He's using ship terms, boat language, the kind of thing where the, the, the boat may have been painted a certain color or whatever. By the way, I don't advocate cosmetics to get rid of flaws on your skin. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about knowing how to possess your vessel and take good care of your vessel. Your vessel is your body. It's, it's, it's what houses the important parts. Then it goes on and it says, Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not, not God. So, in this vessel there might be various things that are useful if used in a right way. Yes. But you're not supposed to... Uh, Ignore what it is, and, and, and you're supposed to pay attention so that you know how to give proper care to this boat, to this vessel, this body. So you know how to sit modestly. You know how to walk. You know how to smile. You know how to communicate certain values. Uh, mothers and fathers, you have a big responsibility in this. Verse 6. The reason he gives you for this is that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. To defraud means to steal, to take something that doesn't belong to you. That no man go beyond and de defraud or make a gain of his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us to uncleanness, that would be lewdness, but unto holiness." 
That concept of holiness is, is all the way through there. Very, very important. Now listen, the teenage years are some of the most difficult. Why? Well, because first of all, there's very little experience. Mother and father need to give good direction. For instance, fathers, I think you need to teach your daughters humility and honor, how to choose their clothing. What are the principles? Father and mother, you need to have a discussion before you go and talk with your children. What about the fashionable desires and certain things that, well, it looks so nice or whatever. Well, take a look at it. Examine it. There's danger and there's a breakdown of a natural shame. And you don't want that to start happening in your home. You want to dignify that. You want to be very careful about maintaining the godliness of your home. You don't want a breakdown so that your sons and your daughters feel comfortable in defrauding one another. It's not right. It's not right to experiment with the concept of the act of marriage prior to marriage. You don't do that. You're careful about that. So things like improper touching, things like improper eye contact, suggestive speech, suggestive ways of walking communicates a message. Be careful of all those things. Kind of material that you have. Is it thin? Can you see through it in the sunlight? Be careful about that. Pay attention. How do you behave? What kind of talk do you have? Do you have loud, boisterous talk to draw attention to yourself? What is this? It feeds the flesh oftentimes. You need to be careful about that, how you can sit. You can teach young girls at a very young age how to sit modestly, and I think it's important. We only had one daughter, and we attempted to do that. And by God's grace, I think we were successful at least to a degree. You can train little ones to be discreet. That's why I said last night, fathers, do you pay attention when you're at a social gathering that you know what your children are doing and why and where they are? I know. I was a child once, too. My father didn't find out everything either. And there were some things that I was sorry about later. Yes, had to take care of them. I, I already told you that in, in some ways the teenage years are the most lustful in many ways. Uh, purity is the standard, folks. See, it says in James, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth what? Death. It's a sad story. It happens over and over each day in America. I'm telling you, folks, the act of marriage is practiced routinely. The abortion industry is never justified because it's some way to control so that, you know, we can take care of what we shouldn't have done. I think we need to be careful about that. Very careful. God is the author of life. And I think it's so serious because God came, he, he made man, then he made woman, and he allowed those two to come together, and they had children. And every time that occurs, there's a soul that is part of that birth, just had one in this, in this congregation with a small child. That soul will live eternally. Somebody said, and I think this is right, it will, that soul will live as long as God. I, if God is eternal and the soul is eternal, I guess that's right. I don't know. That sounds a pretty big statement. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you should correct me. Folks, I wonder how you're doing. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life.
There's a lot of things that could be said. We could go to Proverbs and we could look at the characteristics of the strange woman and the strange man. I don't know that we have time for that. Are you willing to exchange moments of pleasure for a life of misery and ruin? I hope not. I know you're not. You see, you'll always be glad that you stayed pure or you'll always regret that you didn't. There's a serious nature to courtship. I, I, I wish I could help you understand that better. There's a serious nature of courtship. This is not just fun and games. This is you as a young man, as father and mother, praying together that God would lead and God would direct. I had a preacher once tell me, and I'm ashamed. I'll not tell you who it was. He said, I think we just need to let nature take its course, and I just wanted to cry tears. I still do when I think of that. That is not at all what God wants. If you let nature take its course, you will regret it. Sanctity and purity of marriage is a serious matter. It's a matter that God has high regard for to maintain purity. If you marry, marry only in the Lord. There's no violations that, that are somehow going to be overlooked by God. Keep God first in your focus. Satan despises your purity and he would like to destroy it. Whether you're married or unmarried, I would suggest to you that it's a serious matter. I know in American culture, nobody will bat an eye almost over anything. It's sad, but it's true. May God help us how to overcome moral impurity. Number one, learn to hate evil. I believe every generation has to come to the conclusion, I'm going to have to choose, am I going to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, or am I going to learn to hate evil and turn my back on it and turn my face toward God? Number two, regarding moral impurity, repent of it as the sin that it really is. Remember, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. Number three, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Folks, I would suggest if you struggle, young men, I was a young man once too, and I still understand this concept. Attach a Bible verse to your mind that when you face a temptation in a specific matter, memorize the Word of God. It's not magic, but it is, gives us a trigger point that we can quote to ourselves the Word of God and quote it to God and cry out and say, Oh God, I need more grace. Help me grow spiritually. That's number four. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number five, transform your thoughts. Memorization is a good thing. Meditation is the concept of rumination of the mind. Number six, do not frustrate the grace of God. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, it says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the next verse says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. That means to interrupt the grace. God wants to fill you with his grace if you are his child. And that's why I'd say number seven, cry out to God for more grace. 
In James chapter 4 verse 6 it says, Wherefore he giveth more grace. Always cry out to God, God I need more grace, help me Lord. The next thing I have is that the Spirit is working for us. The next thing I have is temptation is common to all men. I remember as a young boy listening to, I think it was Andrew Jancy. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says God will. Oh, I can't say it. 1 Corinthians, I'll find it. I'm sorry. I, I, I know what the clock says. Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to keep going for just a little bit. I'll be done in a little bit. There is no temptation taken you, but such as it's common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And here was his analogy. He said, God stands here. Devil, he's down here. And there's a conveyor that comes by. And the devil's wrapping temptations. And he packages this one that comes down the pike. And, and God looks at it says, no, devil. He throws it back. He says, do that one again. He comes, he does it again, comes back. No, Satan, no. You may not give this one to him. Why? Because there was no escape in that last two that he sent down the pike. And he says, you know, you know the rules. Do it the way you're supposed to do. God will not give us a temptation that we're not able to bear. Thank God. But often we fail. I would like to compliment what I've seen of the purity that I think is displayed, that I see. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, it says, Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And 1 Timothy says, Keep thyself pure. To those of you that are married, Proverbs 5.15, Drink waters out of your own cistern and running waters out of thine own well. Fresh water. Keep the love alive in your marriage. Young men, young women, men, all of you, women, those of you that can hear me, has God spoken to your heart tonight? I know, as long as you're in the body, you're going to face these kinds of things. Understand that. But if there's something you need to repent of tonight, I want to give you opportunity. We're going to sing only a verse or two of a song. If God has spoken to your heart, I want you to come forward and someone will help you find victory. And you can confess your sin to God. You don't have to carry that heavy load. You can repent of it and turn your back on it and give yourself to Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight and you have never become a Christian in your life, never, you want to become a Christian tonight. Let me tell you something. The church is the friendly place in which to do it. Because every one of these people care about you. You might have imagined things. It may or may not be true. I don't know you well enough to even know or answer that question. But I'm telling you, folks, this is the place to take care of spiritual issues. Your pastor loves you and cares about you. So we're going to have prayer, and then we're going to sing a song. And if God has spoken to your heart, I want you to stand to your feet, come forward, whatever. Make it known, and we'll find someone to pray with you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I commit this message to you. And these words, I know that the time is late. And, but Father, if you've spoken to someone, I just pray that they have the courage and grace to repent of sin. I pray that you would help them. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Sometimes it steps on our toes. But I, help, I, I just pray that you'd help people tonight, that they would repent of sin if it's present in their life. 
those that may never have accepted Jesus as their Savior before, I pray that you would speak to them as well if you have called them. Guide us, Lord. I pray your Holy Spirit would be active and working in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.